Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. We are in a series on the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking this morning at Revelation chapter 2. And two weeks ago, we studied the letter to the church at Ephesus. Last week, Pastor Tom was with you, you studied the letter to the church at Smyrna, all right? So Ephesus was, you have great doctrine, you have an incredible way of of following the teaching of God, but... um, Jesus says to that church, he says, but you've lost your first love, and he calls them to return to their first love. Last week, as you looked at Smyrna, we looked at this church who is going to experience some severe persecution, and he says, remain faithful. Remain true to what I've given you. This morning, we are looking at the church of Pergamum. Can you say Pergamum? Pergamum. Now, as we look at this church this morning, I want to remind you of one of the big overarching ideas going on in the book of Revelation. I love the way that Daniel Green says this, while Revelation provides much insight into events yet to transpire on earth, it was originally written to people in desperate need of faith and encouragement. And Pergamum fits this bill like all the other churches do. Pergamum is a place in which um, they experience a level of persecution that is very unique in their time. Uh, I invite you to stand with me together this morning as we read the scripture. We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 2. And if if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Um, We're going to be starting in verse 12. We're in Revelation. It's all the way at the end of the book, Um, end of the Bible, chapter 12. Hear these words of scripture. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is killed among you where Satan lives." But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the, the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, would you give us wisdom by your Spirit to hear your word and to walk faithfully with you and after you this week, and this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, we are looking at the church to 
at the church in Pergamum, and the angel is writing, and Pergamum is a place that exists in Asia Minor. The actual name of Pergamum means citadel, and that will make sense in just a moment. But here's where we are geographically. If you can kind of see in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, we have Patmos. That's where John is receiving this revelation from. He's writing down these letters, and they're going to churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it's following this ancient postal route. So he's writing it, and, and every one of these letters in chapters 2 and 3 are written specifically to a local congregation, but they're also being read by all these other churches. All the believers in all these cities are reading these, because while it's written specifically to a context, it's written to the people of God who also need to hear the message that's going to Pergamum, and the message that's going to Smyrna, and the message that's going to Thyatira. They're reading all these. That's why it says, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to the one church, but to the churches. So Pergamum. So we've been to Patmos. We started there. Ephesus, Smyrna. We're going up the coast. At the top of your screen, we're in Pergamum. Here's where Pergamum is, kind of zeroed in a little bit more. It's about 19 miles off the coast. And that matters in the ancient world. It matters in today's world, too. Because typically, if you're on the coast, you have a lot more influx of trade. We see this with Ephesus. Ephesus becomes a very important city, in part because they're on the water. And they can establish and facilitate this trading of goods that is really important for then starting it on the inland route that would have existed. Um, But all that said, while Pergamum is 19 miles in in Asia Minor... It is one of the most important cities in this whole entire region. In fact, up until Ephesus became such a bustling metropolis and kind of took some of Pergamum's thunder, Pergamum was known as the greatest city or the leading capital city of Asia Minor. And and twice it received the title of being a a city of emperor worship. And and what I mean by that is like the emperor had a, a residence there. The emperor had a a presence there in a way that they didn't in other cities, and that raised the status of that city. It's kind of like when you think about the capital of a state. It's where the governor resides. It's where some of the legislature meets. It it, it raises the level of importance for that city because of all the work that happens there. So that's one of the things that makes um, Pergamum such an important place in the ancient context. Not only that, it's wealthy, It's religious, and it's the center for cult emperor worship. Um, It actually has quite a significant aqueduct system that brings water and takes water out. They were very um, advanced in many ways, uh, technologically speaking, in the ancient world. It also has an ancient theater built into the side of the hill. We'll look at that briefly in a moment. It's known for making things called parchment. You know, after papyrus, parchment becomes the next way to, um, to write, not just write on one side of a sheet, but to write on both sides of the sheet and then put it into what would become books. There's a huge library at Pergamum, one of the largest in the world behind the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Now, I told you Pergamum means citadel. And the reason it means citadel is because it's perched on top of a hill. So when you'd come into Pergamum, you would have the main city on the, like the the normal um, uh, elevation. And then you'd have about a thousand foot hill 
or mountain that rises above it and behind it. And on top of that hill, there was what was called an Acropolis, okay? Uh, polis in Greek means city. And it's this, this is a high city set upon. And so when you come into this place, you see all these um, stores and you see all these homes and all this kind of stuff. But then you look up and you see an amazing thing be- before you. You don't get the sense of the hill here yet, but I want you to see what's on the hill. In this screen, you have several temples of pagan idol worship. You have the Temple of Dionysus in the bottom left. You have the Trajan Temple. You have a couple of palaces to various emperors at different times. You have the library. You have the Temple to Athena. You have the Stoa. You have the Altar of Zeus over on your right. You have the Theater Stoa. And then in the center of your screen, you have the Theater. This is just amazing to behold, the things that they were able to create without hard, uh, heavy machinery, and without electricity and all this kind of stuff. They built this on top of a hill, a thousand-foot hill. And pretty much everything up here is designed as part of the worship to the gods, lowercase g. Okay? Here's an artist rendering of the altar of Zeus. All right, this is an artist rendering of what it would have looked like. Uh, in the bottom left-hand side of your screen, you can see that there's this big stairway column, and it's surrounded by these colonnades. And you can't see it from where you're at, but if you were to go there and you were to zoom in, or if you were to go to Berlin, because they have a Pergamum Museum in Berlin, they have all these carved-in um, like um, marble and stone uh, pictures of the gods that were put onto this actual altar, this, this temple. And so people would go up this stairway, they would go and they would offer worship sacrifices to the god Zeus. Th- this is a very religious place. It's a, it's a place that um, centered its life not just around the worship of one god, but of several gods. And notice what Jesus calls this city. I mean, he starts by saying, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, we'll get back to that in a few minutes, he says, I know where you live, right? So when you think about where they live, he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. A couple verses later, he says again, where Satan lives. Now, I find it very encouraging, actually, for the people in Pergamum to go, Yeah, Jesus knows exactly what we face because we live in the middle of a city and a town and a region that is so anti-God you can hardly stand it. Imagine you're a citizen of Pergamum, but you're a follower of Jesus. You've said, I'm going to serve the one and only true God, but every pressure around you pushes and presses you to accept and to celebrate all the gods, lowercase g, of this world. Every way you would engage in culture, every way you would engage in industry, every trade that you might have would have some sort of god that would be a part of that. And, and so in the ancient period, it's, it's not... One of the biggest things in the ancient period is not to serve a god, it's to serve the gods. You know, the god for this, and the god for this, and the god for this, and the god for this. So to have someone who would say, wait, I I serve one god. He alone is god. is staggering in a culture like this. 
But he says where Satan's throne is. Now, now um, in the midst of this, the commendation that Jesus gives to this church is that they have not, um, or that they have held on to my name and they have not denied their faith in me even in the days of Antipas. Antipas is an early church leader who is called a faithful witness. He he is a martyr for the cause of Christ. Antipas has in his life a single-minded desire to honor the Lord, so much so that he paid for it with everything he had. And Jesus writes to them, he says, I know where you live. You live in Satan's city. I know the kind of life you're experiencing right now even amidst the persecution, you've remained faithful. But just think about it. You're a follower of Jesus in this context, and you're thinking, maybe, Jesus, this is hard. When does this get easy? When does the comfort of this world kick in? Like, like God, don't you want my best? Don't you want my happiness? Jesus never promises comfort. He promises life. In the ancient period, there's all these things that vie to give them comfort. But what Jesus comes to do is he comes to give them life. Antipas and the church in Pergamum have this single-hearted desire, even when there's pressure, even when all the sides are pushing in, they remain faithful. Really quick, I want to show you a couple of the things that vied for their attention. This is Zeus. Zeus is called, it's the, this is actually the largest known Greek altar from the 2nd century BCE. Uh, Zeus is known as the chief of the gods. If we were to go there today, the hill would look like this. These are where the steps to where the Zeus altar is. If you want to, so you can kind of see how it looks over the city. You come to the steps. Again, you kind of zero in on these steps. These are the actual steps of the Zeus altar. That this kind of a contraption would have been placed all over. So all of the city is coming to worship Zeus, the, the chief of the gods. Um, the, the altar is 117 feet wide. It's 110 feet deep. It's 40 feet high. Zeus had some other names. He was called King of Kings. He was called Lord of Lords. He was called God of Gods. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. If you look at this, it almost kind of looks like a throne, like you would sit down. Some scholars think that when he references Satan's throne, that he's probably talking about this. That's not the only type of worship, though. We also have the goddess Athena. This is the sanctuary to Athena. There's not much left of it currently. Um, Athena is the goddess of war and the goddess of wisdom. She's the goddess that tells people how to experience life. Think of how this would have sounded to the, to the Jewish or to the Gentile follower of Jesus in the first century Pergamum. You have your Lord who said, I've come to give you life and to give you life to the full. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And yet you have, in the center of this, you have a now torn down temple of a goddess who says, I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you life. They're walking in, in a context in which, wait, I need wisdom for today. God says that all wisdom is found in him. But I've got Athena over here who all the people around me say, that's where I go to for wisdom. The library is connected to the temple of Athena. And one of the things that 
they would do in the library is they've recorded all the things that bring wisdom. You know, of course, don't you know, you go to the literature of the day and you find wisdom. And it's in all this literature that they're supposed to find wisdom. And Jesus says, no, come to me for life. Come to me for wisdom. There's this pressing that's going on in their culture. Dionysus, um, the temple of Dionysus, bottom left-hand corner of your screen. Um, the temple of Dionysus is an interesting one because Dionysus is the god of wine. He's the god of theater and he's the god of the great big party. Okay, not the good kind of party, the kind of party where everything goes off the rails and you have to call the cops, right? That's the kind of party that Dionysus is all about. Whatever goes, it doesn't matter. Dionysus is connected with the theater. The theater in the ancient world, as much as anything, it it was a place for arts and entertainment, but it was also a place to go ahead and normalize things that were taboo. For example, you would go here, you'd see a play, and they would introduce, um, they would introduce uh, subject matter and ideas that, would, that were designed to push the culture, that were designed to change the worldview of a community little by little. In, in fact, um, here's a photo of the theater. It seats about 10,000. It's the steepest theater in the known world. You can be down at the bottom, look all the way up, you can speak, and everyone hears you. You have a captive audience on top of this hill. And a captive audience is just what they want. As I came across this quote this week, as Andrew Fletcher said, he's an 18th century Scottish writer, he says, let me make the songs of the nation, and I care who not makes the laws. The theater in the ancient period was more than just entertainment. It was a way to indoctrinate the next generation and the current generation in wherever the people wanted to take them. What happens when that happens? Things become normalized. The teaching of Scripture becomes lessened, and everyone just kind of absorbs because that's what the culture does. Not only that, but there's another god in the ancient period. His name is Asclepium. Can you say Asclepium? Yeah, that's very good. That's a fun word to say. Asclepium. Now, Asclepium is essentially, this is the, the, the temple of Asclepium, it's essentially the God of healing, all right? So in the ancient period, like, like today, we have a modern places of medicine to where you would go. If you're going to like the best of the best, you might go to some place like the Mayo Clinic, right? A couple years ago, my father-in-law had a significant surgery done at the Mayo Clinic, and he, he saw a surgeon who had done more of these surgeries than pretty much anyone else in the world. It's like the best of the best. Welcome to the Asclepium. But not only providing medical um, services. It's, it's a mixture between medicine and religion. It's a, it's a mixture between we're coming here to find a healing for our daughter or to find a healing for our aging parent, but it's also a place in which you would go and you engage in um, sacred and in spiritual rites. For example, one of the things they would do is they would have them wash with the sacred water. You know, they put this on them thinking that, oh, there's something in the water that's going to, to, to bring salvation and healing to you. 
Um, one of the things that they would do is after maybe they did some water treatment or they might soak in something, they'd come down to the subterranean underneath the earth chamber where they would spend some time in this chamber. The patients would, and they would come up the next day and, you know, they, they would consult with their doctor about what they saw and what they heard and, and all this kind of stuff. There's a quote I have here. It says, after their night in the subterranean chambers, patients would ascend to the temple, which had a circular shape. Here's the circular shaped temple. So that they could walk in a never-ending procession. There were sacrifices that took place here. The pillars had supporting vaults for individual tubs of bathing. And so um, Asclepium was the god of medicine and healing. He had another name, according to Mark Wilson, who writes an incredible book on ancient um, Asia Minor. Uh, it's, a, it's a tour guide book, actually. His other name was Soter. Can you say Soter? You know what Soter means? Soter means Savior. So here you have um, a god called Zeus, lowercase g, called Zeus, who's king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods. You have someone who is uh, like Athena, who, who is wisdom. You have someone who, like Dionysus, who's the god of wine and the god of, of, of joy and the god of party. And you have Asclepium, who's the god of healing, who calls himself, or who people call, because he's not really a real god, uh, who's called Soter, who's called Savior. I show you all of this to underscore something. These people lived in a city which, by all accounts, pushed against their belief and their trust that there is one god worthy of worship, the god Jesus who came, who created the world, who came, who lived, who died as a sacrificial lamb for their sins to bring them life. And all of the culture is screaming, you can find life, you can find healing, you can find party, you can find joy, and all these other things just give your allegiance to them. Do you feel the pressure? You feel the pressure of living in a society where everything around you screams, you cannot worship Yahweh. You should not worship Yahweh. And how Jesus writes to them, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. I like the way um, Pastor Brad Gray puts it. Um, he says, some people think that the Satan's throne is the Zeus altar. He says, you look around this entire city and you see just a hub of demonic activity. And that's where God's people are. And that's where they're called to be faithful. Now, I shared with you the four patron deities of the ancient period. There's one other one that's very significant that I've alluded to already, and that's the emperors. The emperors played a very important time because the emperors had what was called the right of the sword. Can you say usgladi? Usgladi, okay. Usgladi means right of the sword. When Jesus says in the very beginning of this, he says, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, he's talking about a sword that is uh, with authority. But he's saying, you know what? The one who has this actual sword says, but he's writing it to people who live in a city that is dominated by emperor worship. And the emperor is the one who has usgladi. And usgladi is the power to take life whenever they want. It's the final, it's the final way of expressing authority over someone's life. 
But for the Christians, for Christians like Antipas, they learned early in their walk with Jesus that the, the emperor might have Uskalati, the power of the sword, or the right of the sword, but the emperor's not the one who gives life. But in the ancient period, it was all about the emperors as well. And so you have um, Caesar on the, on the left of this coin. You have Roma, and I'm trying to remember the name of the other goddess on the other one. You have Roma and the other goddess on the right. And part of this was propaganda, uh, Claudius, Roma, and Augustus. And so they had these temples that were, that were frequented in Pergamum because this was a city where there was a lot of worship to the emperors. For example, this is the temple to Trajan. Now, Trajan is one of those not very nice Roman emperors uh, in the first century A.D., and he had this place that was built. I think it was finished in the early part of the second century uh, AD. And this was part of the worship to him, right? But so for a hundred plus years, um, the city of Pergamum had been all about the worship of the emperor. And so it was a place where the emperor was welcomed. It was a place where the emperor would put his name. It was, a, it was something that, you know, we celebrate the emperor here. So not only do they feel the pressure as Christians against um, all these other gods like Zeus, Athena, uh, Asclepius, and that last one. Um, yeah, that last one. Uh, but they also feel this tension with the Caesar who is called a lord, who is called a god, who is deified in the culture. And so they have this tension going on in this place, and this was Satan's city. In fact, this, this temple here to Trajan is at the very top of the Acropolis. So as you can see it from this picture, you can kind of look down because you can see all these other mountains around. When you would walk into the city, you'd go, wow, this city is about something. Whenever you drive into a city, you can kind of see what a city is about. If they're about arts, for example, we went to Nashville uh, several months ago for a wedding, and we drive into Nashville. Nashville is called Music City, and you can see this recording studio and that recording studio. You can see um, uh, the, all the performance halls, like the Grand Old Opry. And you go, yeah, I get an idea about what the city is about. You, you drive into a city that, that builds things, you know? You can see, oh, wow, there's a lot of industry here. You, you drive into a city where there's medicine all around. You go like, oh, man, medicine's really important here. You come into this city and you go, wow, there's a temple to Trajan. There's a temple to this God and there's a temple to this God. And emperor worship was steeped into the core. And this is the place in which God's people dwelt and they had to struggle in what it means to follow God in a culture that valued and prioritized the worship of everything other than Yahweh. One writer says they were constantly under pressure to compromise their monotheistic convictions, as apparently some did, to gain a more prosperous life and a better social status. It says, festivals held by trade guilds were part of a city's ordinary life and involved paying respect to the guild's patron deities. And if you refused to participate, it would have resulted in economic, social, and other marginalization, if not outright persecution. But he says this, the imperial cult, the, the Roman emperor cult, directly challenged Christianity, which forbids worship of any human other than Jesus' Lord and Savior, both used as titles of the emperor. 
Refusal to pay public homage to Caesar as a deity would have been considered not only irreligious, but treasonous. So you don't worship Caesar because you're a Christian, and then your neighbor starts to look at you and says, wait, why aren't you doing that? And the, the city government starts to look at you and say, you're a troublemaker because you're not falling in the party line. Do you feel the tension? This is where they lived, where Satan's throne is. And Jesus says to them, you have held on to my name, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. That's his word of commendation. I don't know about you, but if I were them, I'd be like, reading that commendation, yes, we have. Not, not as like a pat on the back, but, but you, you know, as a son, you want to hear um, words of encouragement from your mom and your dad. As, as a daughter, you want to hear words of encouragement from your mom and your dad. As a husband or wife, you want to hear words of encouragement from your spouse. This is Jesus coming to his bride and saying, you've remained faithful even when it's hard. It's not a way to go. It's a recognition of an authentic faith that they had. And it's a way for Jesus to just lift them up. Now, he lifts them up. He encourages them. He commends them. And then here's what Jesus says. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there. So, so there are some who remain faithful, but there's some a part of the community there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, um, sometime later this week, go back to Numbers and read the story of Balaam. It's a fascinating story. It takes place on the plains of Moab here. This is, this is uh, kind of, so you see the Dead Sea. This is the northern, north central part of of um, Israel. We're in Israel now, not in Asia Minor. And you can see Jericho on the far, and you can see Jordan River going up and down because it goes between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And these are the plains of Moab. And Israel's getting ready to come into the land. And a guy by the name of Balak goes to a guy by the name of Balaam, and he says, I want you to curse these people because he's very anti-God. And Balaam sees this like opportunity to make some money and yet he says, I can't do anything that the Lord doesn't give me permission to do. So God says, you're not going to curse them. And so he ends up blessing them and blessing them and blessing them. Balak's getting mad because he wants them to be cursed. Balaam can't do anything directly against God's people. And so here's what Balaam does. He tells Balak, he says, you know, there's another way to solve this. You want to get to them. Instead of going the direct path of cursing them, why don't you seduce them to begin to follow the other gods of this world, namely through women who will seduce them to have relationships that aren't good, biblical, or proper, and little by little, you change the culture by just turning it a little, and just turning it a little. Balaam is in it for the money. Balaam is in it, uh, uh, he's in it because he loved gain he loved the gain, the financial gain he would receive from wrongdoing. And Jesus comes to these people and he says, you have some people who love the gain from doing what is wrong. Stop it. Like, turn from that, Jesus says. Don't be like Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block. Now, what's mentioned here is meat sacrificed to idols and committing sexual 
immorality. As part of pagan worship, there would often be sexual immorality and eating as a part of uh, feasts that were designed to honor the emperor, designed to honor one of the other gods. And so literally what they're being tempted to do is just compromise with culture and be a part of this cult and be a follower of Jesus. Just compromise a little bit and turn this way in your walk with God and join this because it's more socially acceptable. For some of them, it was probably because they were in a place where like, well, if I don't do this, then how am I going to do this, right? How am I going to be a part of society? How am I going to be in the know? How am I going to be a part of, of the neighbor's life down the street if I don't do what he does, even though God says don't walk in that way? The God who gives life says don't walk in that way. And this is the tension that they're feeling. And he, he ties us to the people of the Nicolaitans. He says, in the same way, so there's a similar thing going on here between Balaam and Balak and what happens there and the Nicolaitans. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We, we looked at this briefly back in the first section of chapter 2, where he says to the church at Ephesus, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the Ephesus church does a really good job of maintaining very orthodox doctrine, but one of the things they struggle with was keeping love as the priority of how they walk with each other. You know, they became so rigid in order to keep evil out, which is important, but they lost the greatest thing as love. And how do we engage in both of those things? And there's really only one way to engage with that, and that's with the power and the help of God. That, that balance is so, so tender and so important. So here you have Pergamum, who I think they're not struggling as much with what it means to love people and to try to accept people. They're trying to love and to accept people, but they're letting the guard down of what God said, this is good and this is appropriate and this is not how you should walk. So in other words, Pergamum, you could say, is a church that maintained love, but lost some of the solid doctrine that gave them a foundation for their faith that was important. Now, this isn't about legalism, right? He's not calling them into legalism. He's calling them to walk by the Spirit. He's calling them to be reminded of who they are and to walk with Jesus in this manner. And Jesus is pointing this out for the people in Pergamum. You need to make sure, he says, that you don't compromise God's word in your community. Because when we compromise God's word, what happens then is falsehood creeps in and false teaching creeps in. And that leads the people of God down a path that God never designed or intended or wants. And it's a path that doesn't bring life. Uh, an interesting reference is in Second Peter uh, chapter 2 when it references Balaam. And let me just quickly read you, as soon as I find it, Second Peter chapter 2, when it talks about Balaam here, Peter's referencing Balaam. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, he says, um, uh, let me back up here, actually verse... 14. Um, these people have eyes full of adul adultery, and they're always looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed, children under curse. But verse 15, he says this, they have gone astray by abandoning the straight path, and they have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Besor, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Jesus is saying, come back to the path. 
The teaching of Balaam is a teaching that takes you down a different path. And Jesus' invitation is, come back to the path. And here's how he sets up this invitation. So after all this, he says, therefore, in verse 16, he says, repent. This is the only command in this section of our teaching. This is therefore, repent. And it's really, sometimes repent can be, repent! You know, like you go out on the street corners, not that you do this, but some people in times past have gone out on street corners and tried to like force people into repentance by being seemingly angry about it. Um, repent! This is an invitation from Jesus. He's saying, you're going down the wrong path. Come back to me. Come back to my path. Repent. The word repent here means to have a change of mind. And it's not just a change of mind that, like, now I think the right thing, right? That's a very Western Greek way of thinking. Um, generally speaking, in the West, we have a, a practice that cares much more about thinking about what's right. In the Jewish framework, the idea of repentance is think about which is right. You have a change of your mind which leads to a change of your walk. You know, if I think I'm headed to Ohio and yet I head west from here, I can think, man, it'd be great to go southeast. But if I continue heading west, I'm going to go into the Lake Michigan. <laughs> it's going to not be a very fun swim over to Wisconsin. The idea of repentance is to have a change of mind which leads to a change of, of walking, a change of direction, a, a, returning to God's path. And that's the command, but that's also the invitation for people living amidst a very pagan culture. His call is for those of you who are not walking my path, have a change of mind. Come back to what is true. Now, there's an interesting um, thing here when it talks about um, this double-edged sword. I told you that, that the double-edged sword is the right of the sword, the us gladi, right? This right of the sword of judgment. Um, in the ancient period, um, it was also, or in Scripture, not in the ancient period, but in Scripture, it's also referred to this way. In fact, the only other time the adjective here of, of, um, of double-edged sword is used in the Scripture is this verse in Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's talking about the word of God. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions, that should say, of the heart. For Jesus, he says, I'm the one who holds the sword. Which to the ancient person is going, wow, there may be the king who thinks he owns authority over my life, but he doesn't. Jesus does. And it's a sword of, of, of righteous judgment, but it's also a sword of dividing to what is true. And in some ways, you could say it this way. Jesus is saying, my word will penetrate to the very point of your heart where I know beyond whatever action you do, I know exactly where your heart is. Um, in the story of David and his call to become king. Um, Jesse uh, is David's father, and, and um, Samuel the prophet comes, and he's looking for this king, and he looks at Eliab, David's oldest um, brother, 
and Jesse's oldest son. And then there's this next one, this next one, this next one. He looks at Eliab, though, and he goes, wow, he's the tallest. He's the oldest. This must be the one. And God says, nope. God says, nope. God passes on all these sons, and he comes to this last one. Why? God says this, men look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. When we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus, it's first and foremost an issue of the heart. My friend, where is your heart today? Where is your heart today? The word of God is living and it's active. It's not a book of old words. In fact, the phrase word of God later in Revelation is going to be used of Jesus himself. He, he, in Re- Revelation chapter 19, you can go look it up. He's called the word of God when he comes to rule and to reign in, in righteous judgment. Jesus comes. And my, my, my point is this. is not just saying, all right, now I must know the Bible and therefore I know the truth. That is true. The Bible is God's revealed word and it is true. But more important than that is the one who came, who is true, who is life. When you're in Pergamum, and you have all these gods to worship around you. You have the choice to try to find life in Zeus or Athena or Dionysus or any, other, any of the other ones. But there's only one who's going to bring you and me life. And that's Jesus. And his invitation to us this morning is to repent. If you're walking in a path that is different from God's, come back to God. Come back to God. Come back to the teaching of his word because in him we find life. In his revelation we find wholeness. In him we have all that we need. You say, how, how do I do that? Here's how this change occurs. I love Romans chapter 12 because it says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. He does not say, go do all the things that are written in my book and then come back to me. He says, come to me. Come to me. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Say, God, I don't want my life to be about Jeremy anymore. I want my life to be about you. It's in you I find life. God, it's in you I found wholeness. God, it's in you I found peace and joy and love. It's in you I found forgiveness. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says this, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember, the the idea of repentance is to have a change of mind. But notice what it says in Romans here. It says, says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed is a passive, right? It's not something that we can do ourselves. We can't say, I'm going to be transformed, and dadgum, I'm going to be the best transformer of the transformed ever. We have to present ourselves to God, the one who is righteous, holy, true, good. The one who meets every spiritual need we have in Christ. We have to present ourselves to God. 
and allow him to transform us. And on the one hand, that feels like, but God, as a Westerner and as a doer, right? That feels like, but God, I have to do something. That's right. Here's what you do. You present yourself to God. So you find yourself, you're like, God, am I off, am I off on the wrong path? Here's what you do. You come back to God and you present yourself to God. You open this book. You open his word to you and you say, God, would you teach me what is right and true and good? Will you lead me in streams of righteousness for your name's sake? It has nothing to do with who you are because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven, you are set free, you, you, you are acceptable, you are adequate because of Christ's work in your life, right? That's who you are. But we present ourselves to God because all of us are in this process of transformation. All of us are in the process of being transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may be able to test and to approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. We present ourselves to God. My, my friends, when you find yourself in a challenging moment this week, don't first look for how do I manufacture a solution here? Just say, Father, what do you want me to know today? What, what do you want me to see that I'm not seeing? Be in the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to bring the memory of your reading and the revelation of his truth to your heart and to your life. When you have people speak into your life, listen to those who come back to the word of God because they're representing something true about who God is. But always take that truth and say, God, what of this truth do I need to walk out? Earlier this week, um, uh, we were talking about something in our home, and a couple of words left my mouth that were more intended out of frustration and out of tearing down rather than of building up. So I went out for my run, and the Lord began convicting me even before my run, no, you need to go apologize, you need to go make that right, <laughs> right? The, the Word of God was acting in my life. The Spirit of God was acting in my life to bring the sense of you, you may not have intended it, but your word's harmed. So I came back from that run, and I was like, yeah, I need to apologize. This daily practice, this minute-by-minute minute walking with God, is that which leads to life. Being conformed to Jesus' way means we need to constantly expose ourselves to his truth, but it means we must constantly and regularly yield our lives to God so that he can change, lead, and guide us in our walk. Where are you at in your walk with Jesus this morning? What, what is the Holy Spirit saying, my son, my daughter, you've honored me in all this, but here, be very careful. Maybe God is calling you back to understanding who you are in Christ. Maybe there's talk of self-shame and self-harm that's going on in your life, and Jesus just wants to remind you, you're loved, you're adequate, you're sufficient because of my work in you. I delight in you, he tells his people. Maybe you, you have a relationship in your life that the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to go and I want you to seek biblical restoration in this. Maybe that's a spouse, maybe that's a kid. I think the last time we were together, one of the last times we were together, I shared with you, you know, Scripture reminds us as much as it is possible with us, live at peace with all people. 
Maybe there's a practice in your life. Maybe it's a media practice of what you consume. Maybe it's a, a practice of what you read, or maybe it's a practice of speech that God is saying, I want you to present yourself to me because I want to change you by leading you and guiding you in a way that's true, not in a way that's partially true. And that may lead, probably will lead to a different type of action. Come to God and say, God, what do you want to reveal to me today about my life? And then trust him for that. Really quickly, the last paragraph of this says, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, I will give the victor. Now, when we talked about victor a couple weeks ago, it was the victor who has the right to eat from the tree of life, which is for every follower of Jesus. Everyone who has a relationship by faith in Jesus, who believes that Jesus died and rose again, not just believes like mentally, but has said, I can't live this way on my own. God, I need to come back to your saving grace for eternity, but for my here and now. Here's his word about the victor into the church in Pergamum. He says, I'll give the victor some of the hidden manna. Manna in the scripture is, is a walk of faith that means to trust God. When Israel experienced manna, they had just left Egypt. God had led them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're going, God, there's no food to eat. And God provides manna, which means, what is it, right? What is it? I don't know what it is. It's, it's food that they ate for a long time, day after day after day, and God sent it every morning, and they picked it up that morning. And on Friday, he sent a double portion so that they wouldn't have to go collect it on Shabbat. It's this action of trust that God provides hidden manna. God, God provides you what you spiritually need for where you are at right now. But sometimes it doesn't look like that because you'll experience that provision in the moments of faith when you say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to fa- follow the patterns and the practices of this world. I'm going to trust that your word is true. I'm going to trust that you are true. I'm going to trust that you will meet my needs here. I'm not going to pursue those things. God, would you help me not to do that? Hidden manna is God saying, I'll provide you everything you need for this day. This picture of abundant provision, this picture of trust But then he says, he says, I will give him a white stone. There's a whole bunch of theories about this white stone. Uh, And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a lot of theories about the white stone. Um, One of probably, I think, the best ones that I have heard from the ancient period, because it's this picture that, that culturally speaking, we're not exactly sure what they're talking about. But in the ancient period, they would have white stones that would be uh, shown for acceptance, black stones that would be shown for not acceptance. So one of the understandings of this could be, I will give him a white stone, which means I accept you. And I like that because when it talks about, um, and on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. When it talks about a new name, I love this passage in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2, it says this. It says, Nations will see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the Lord's mouth will announce. He's talking to Israel. He's talking about Zion's restoration. He's talking about how Messiah will come and he will proclaim liberty for the captives and freedom and all this kind of stuff. But he says, nations will see your righteousness. It's not the Israelites' righteousness that they see. 
It's God's righteousness given to his people that they see. So when it says, I will give you a new name, I think what it's talking about is I'm going to give you a new name that bears my righteous action in your life. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you that I accept you. I'm going to show you that my manna will provide for you. I'm going to show you with a white stone that I accept you. And I'm going to show you by giving you a new name that your righteousness is not something that you have of your own. It's something that's been given to you, but I've graciously given to all who receive it. I think that's what he's leading to there. Pergamum, in the middle of a city where Satan dwells, the people of God are called to remain faithful And they're called to present themselves to God so that they might walk in his truth. Because it's not just walking in what's right. It's walking with the one who is righteous and true. What is God telling you this morning? Where is God calling you back to himself this morning? Father, oh Lord, there are so many things in our world and in our culture that vie to take the name God status in our life. And many times, Lord, that is ourselves. We seek so many times to make ourselves the most important. And Lord, I thank you that you forgive us, that that when we confess our sins, Scripture says, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, um, I thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. These believers years ago who faced such um, hardship and faced such persecution in their context, God, they remained faithful, and I pray that we would remain faithful today. I also pray, God, that we would have, um, that we would daily yield ourselves to the leading of your Spirit, that we might walk with you in light of your truth. Lord, it'd be so easy for us to say, as long as we keep the fence posts here, we're good. That's not what you call us to. You call us to walk with you, our King of righteousness. So God, we come to you today. Would you reveal to our hearts right here and right now the places in which we're allowing the gains of this world to cloud out what we already have in Christ. Thank you, God, for bringing us life. Help us to return and to experience that life, your life, today as you live in and through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.